This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for Sunday, November 15th, 2015. The Gospel is taken from the book of Mark, chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. The message is by Father Ron Baird. I have to be honest with you, when I first read this gospel lesson this week, I went, oh boy. Um, Let's see, good news, earthquakes, famines, wars, sounds wonderful, doesn't it? (laughs) Um, I guess the part of my problem is I'm just not really an end of the world kind of preacher. Um, My thinking of the end of the world has always been, well, when the world ends, Jesus is coming back, so we win. And so I haven't been real worried about it. Um, it'll always be fine. So I struggled all week long about, all right, Lord, if you want me to say something about this, you better come up with something good because I got nothing. <laughs> and so I prayed and prayed and prayed and nothing was coming. And then the attack in Paris happened. And all of a sudden I realized how quickly the world can fall down around you. You know, for those of you who haven't followed real closely, the death toll is almost 130 now. Um, and probably will still rise. These terrorists believe that it was important to go and attack a concert, a soccer match, and four restaurants. Must have been a big danger to them to go attack people who are innocent people, have nothing to do with anything, and, and just destroy their life and wipe it out. It leads us to wonder how in the world can this be? I mean, we live in the 21st century. You know, things like this shouldn't be happening. You know, surely by now we would all be more civil than this. But it's not happening, is it? Now, it'd be easy to say, well, they're evil, which is true. I don't think anybody would say that isn't evil. But it's kind of a simplistic answer just to give to it, nor does it solve the problem, does it? It doesn't really change anything. One of the problems that we have is how do we stop it? How do we change it? What do we do? You know, a lot of people have solutions. You know, people want boots on the ground. People don't want boots on the ground. I mean, they're all over the map on it. But that would be sort of somewhat missing the point um, because we have wiped out some groups here and there. We just have new ones that rise up you know, and take their place. And, and a big part of this is because we're losing the, the ideological war. We're losing the war of values about what we believe in and what we stand for as human beings and what it means to be human. And it's a sad time when people can actually talk people from moving from relative prosperity in the United States to go live in a third world country in a cave somewhere to die. And that seems like a better alternative to them. What does it say about what we're teaching people? If that's even a solution. Everything I read this week, I was reading about a recent survey that was done about uh, denominations in the United States. The largest denomination in the United States is the, are the evangelical Christians, which would be Southern Baptists and all evangelical Christians like that. So it's not just an individual denomination, but a group of denominations. Um, and they make up about 26% of the United States at this point. You know what the second largest is? You would think it'd be Roman Catholic, wouldn't you? It used to be second, they're not anymore. Now it's nuns. 25% of the people in the United States say that either they are atheist, agnostic, or don't believe in any religion at all. One in four of the people that we know. Um, it, the rates are the same, by the way, in Ohio, so we can't say we got it better here. It's all those people up in New England and the Northwest that cause our problems. It, it, it's the same here. The rates are the same. And 
the only good news you can pull out of that is that um, part of the reason why the nuns have risen, they're called nuns because they didn't bother to give themselves their own answer, their own name, so that's what happens when you get by your own name, um, is that um, the people, there are a lot of people used to say that they were Christian, and um, they would say they were nominal Christian. Well, nominal Christians are dying out. They're no longer feel the need to say I'm nominal anything. Now they say I don't believe any of that stuff. I don't, it doesn't have anything to do with me. I don't have anything to do with it. It's irrelevant. And yet, that's at the very heart of what's going on in the world today. When we lose the ability to believe in a common set of values, then we lose who we are. And chaos begins to reign. It's not the first time it's happened, by the way. Um, the Roman Empire was the greatest empire the world had ever known up to that point. Um, and most people, when we think of the Roman Empire, we tend to think of biblical times with Jesus, you know, with the emperors and all that kind of stuff. But that actually wasn't the heyday of the Roman Empire. That's what's funny about it. The heyday of the Roman Empire came before that. Because it was when Rome was a republic that it was the greatest. And they would elect their senators who would rule the country. And out of the Senate, they would elect one, two, or three people to serve as proconsul for a year. Um, who would sort of preside over the Senate, and they would make decisions about what needed to go on in the country. And that's where, how Rome rose to greatness. They became very, very wealthy and did, you know, did incredible things. And they did it because in Rome, what made them different than everybody else was that they had a, a basic set of values that made them Roman. They believed in hard work, in integrity, honor, duty, family honesty. Those things were the values that made them Roman. And for somebody to violate that, they'd be ostracized. You know, they'd be considered terrible. And so to fit into the society, people did that and they served. They served in all kinds of ways and gladly so. And the country prospered and did wonderfully. But the more prosperous it became, the more diverse it became because they began to conquer other nations and, and different types of people started coming into the Roman Empire and the Roman world, including Rome itself. And now all of a sudden we start getting this thing about, well, we can't expect everybody to be like us. We're all different after all. And gradually, slowly, factions started rising. This group and that group people who thought that the senators were being fair, people who thought that they weren't. And it finally got to the point that by the time Julius Caesar comes around, corruption became predominant in the Roman system. Because what the people wanted was what they called bread and circuses at that time. Bread and circuses, circuses weren't Barnum and Bailey, by the way. It was like the Hippodrome where they had horse races and gladiator contests and things like that. But they wanted free stuff from the government. And they wanted somebody else to pay for it. They didn't want to do it. And so Julius Caesar became dictator for life, basically by going and conquering Gaul, um, you know, pillaging the whole area, bringing back a whole lot of money, and having a lot of money to spread around. People loved it. Thought it was great. No problem. The problem is, though, that after he died, then every successive emperor had to do the same thing to be able to keep up with all these people. And everybody wanted more. And the country did grow for a while and continued to prosper, but eventually what happens is that these factions start turning on each other. And when they start turning on each other, they start 
not wanting to serve in the military anymore because that's hard work. You know, and I shouldn't have to do that. I'm a Roman. Let somebody else do that. And guess who shows up at the gates? The barbarians. And they did the same thing that's happening to us now. They raped and pillaged and stole and destroyed. And at first, they were able to round up people to go out and fight them, but, and they would kind of stop them for the time being, and then they'd go back to normal, and everybody go, well, I'm glad that's over with. And then it would happen over and over and over again because you had the Goths, the Visigoths, the Gauls, the Huns. I mean, Attila the Hun was a wonderful experience. I mean, you, know, you had all these various groups that kept coming in and just wiping out you know, the outskirts of the empire. So that basically what they decided, well, we don't really need England that much. It's kind of a long way away. We'll just withdraw from there. And so they pulled out of England, then they pulled back from Gaul, all the way back almost to the Pyrenees Mountains. Um, and, and yet the barbarians never stopped. They had a pretty good deal. You know, because there was a big cost to them. And the real problem was that nobody in Rome really wanted to go up into Germany and attack these people. I mean, that's a barbaric place. They don't even have running water in Germany at that time. I mean, you had, you, you, they had it in Rome. They didn't have public baths. I mean, what kind of place doesn't have public baths, right? And so the Romans didn't want to go do that, and, but the barbarians kept attacking, so they decided we need to do something, so they hired mercenaries. Guess where they got the mercenaries? From the barbarians, yeah, the very people who were attacking them. They, they said, well, maybe if we can't get them to quit attacking us, we can get them to fight for us and go fight these other people. And it wasn't very long, a century or so, before the barbarians took over Rome. And Rome fell. And Rome has never been great again. And a lot of people attribute it to corruption in government, which is true. Um, a lot of people corrupt it to, you know, attribute to a lot of things even the immorality of the place. But what it really boiled down to was they, they stopped being who they were. They started being a whole lot of different people. And they couldn't get along with each other. And what's scary about this is that this started in Europe right after World War II, where you had all these factions and secularism became on the rise because we don't like religion because they, they have ideas and preferences. And so more and more people in, in, in Europe became non-religious nuns. And now we're seeing it spread throughout the United States. And can you believe that a group of people who have maybe 60,000 soldiers total are able to hold a whole world at bay? A world with nuclear weapons? The most sophisticated technologies that we've ever known? And yet somehow or other we can't figure out what we're going to do with them. Well, it's not because of a lack of power because of a lack of will and a lack of common purpose and belief. Because if we can't all agree on what the values are that we're standing for, that we have to stand up for, how in the world would we ever fight them? And even if we fought them with our power, how would we ever change the thought patterns of people who think that way? Because we have nothing to offer. And the saddest part about it here in the United States is that the church is complicit in this. We've become another faction. You've got lots of factions in the church. You've got evangelicals, you've got you know, Catholics, you've got you know, mainline Christians. You know, and, and for most of us, we're kind of like the early Romans. We'd like to let somebody else go take care of the problem. You know, you know, if you're Anglican, after all, why should we have to do anything, right? Because we're less than 1% of the whole population in the United States. Why should we be responsible for changing all this? You know, we prefer just to sit at home and drink our scotch and have somebody else go do it. It'd be much more pleasant. 
The only problem is it doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. And even more so, we're allowing the factions within the church to divide our message in such a way that if you ask nuns what the most, um, what the main thing that churches are concerned about is, what do you think they would tell you? Money. That's a pretty sad commentary, isn't it? What's the second thing? Sex? No, not sex. Although sort of sex, but not, not just sex. Rules. Yeah. What are the rules? You know, you're supposed to behave the way we tell you to behave. And if you don't, then we judge you. Now, does it strike you as a little odd that people wouldn't want to join a group of people who want your money and want to tell you how to behave all the time? <laughs> I mean, why would anybody want to do that? That's just crazy. And, but we've forgotten the gospel. The gospel wasn't about making people behave. The gospel wasn't about making money. The gospel was about a God who loves us so much that even while we're yet in our sin, he died for us. Think about that. Even though we are sinners, and in many ways have no intention of changing it, God died for us. That's an incredible kind of God. It takes an incredible kind of love to do that. And yet, that's the kind of love that God has for us. Now, he didn't say, you know, while, we were yet, while you're yet in your sins, I'll die for you and just keep on doing it because it's loads of fun. But he also didn't say stop doing it because it makes you a bad person. What he said was, don't do that. It's hurting you. And I love you. I don't want you to hurt. I don't want you to be broken. I want you to have joy. I want you to have contentment and peace. And you can't have that if you're being broken all the time. And so I'm providing you this way that you can finally get out of it. I'll give you my Holy Spirit who will help guide you if you will only listen, if you will only take it. And yet still so many of us say, oh, okay, sure, whatever. But then we don't act like it. We don't change the way we live. We don't treat people differently. We sit in judgment of people who are different than us as much as anybody else. You know, it said that the most segregated place in America on Sunday morning is the church. Do you know that? That's a sad commentary, isn't it? What does that say about us? You know, if we're really supposed to be the people who know about love, about forgiveness, about acceptance, how is it that we've gotten to this place? Part of it is that we've started being an institution and quit being bearers of the gospel. And now... One in four people that you know, at least, don't believe. They have nothing to believe in. Is it any wonder that they're turning to their own devices and their own desires, things that they think are important and what they want? What else would they turn to? They have nothing bigger than themselves to believe in. But we do. And the truth is, is that somebody has got to start talking to these people, this one in four people. We have to go start going to them saying, hey, do you have church anywhere? Do you ever ask anybody that question? I mean, and and you, know, you might get in, no, I don't really go to church. I'm not much into church. I get that sometimes. But then do you say, really, why not? You ever ask them that? What'd you get? Yeah, I don't know. Don't have 